When Rashi, I mean, after all, is our teacher. We all learn Chumash with Rashi. And Rashi is our teacher. And Rashi taught us the importance of the detail. Rashi is the one who taught us that every word is important. That everything in the, in the Torah should be respected. That the, the sentences, the phrases, I mean, they're not just the result of some accidental happenstance, but they are of great significance, each and every one. And so when Rashi comes across, when Rashi comes across a, a pasuk that doesn't make any sense, right? That's a problem. That's a problem for Rashi. It's a problem for Rashi, and because Rashi is our teacher, it becomes a problem for us. So what Rashi does in this case is fill in the blank. He says, Hashem el Moshe bo el paro. If you look at the Rashi, right underneath those psukim, Vatredbo, and warn him. In his Rashi says that the intelligent reader, that the intelligent reader has the capacity sometimes of filling in the blank. And what is blank here is, what is it that HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe Rabbeinu that he should do? Why should he bo el paro? Why should he come to paro? What's, what's expected of him? So Rashi says, you have to understand, in every case of the 10 plagues in Mitzrayim, there was a hatra'ah, hatra'ah is a warning, right? Halachically, you can't punish a person for doing something wrong unless you warn him. You say to him, if you do that, you have to know what the punishment is. You have to know what punishment you're going to get. That's the hitrebo. That's the hitrebo. That's what, that's, what, uh, uh, that's what Rashi says. That's what Rashi says. However, not everybody who dealt with this pasuk was happy about that result. Okay, but why is it that the pasuk misleads me? Why is it that the pasuk doesn't set me off in the right direction? Why is it that the pasuk finds me unable to put the pieces together even after I know what Rashi had to say about it? Now, in order to understand the position of Rav Nachman, on this issue, just this issue, Bo El Paro. In order to understand the position of Rab Nachman, we have to learn together a little Kabbalah. Kabbalah? You're not nervous. No. Nothing bad will happen, I assure you. But there is a little bit of Kabbalah that we have to learn in order to understand Rav Nachman's position on this particular question. And Rav Nachman himself summarizes this Kabbalistic information, and it begins in the middle of the page. You see where it says, Likutei Maharan Kama Siman Samachdalet? It's a very famous Torah of Rav Nachman called, believe it or not, Bo El. 
Paro. That's what it's called. And you know what it's about? This Pasuk. It's about this Pasuk. So here we are. We're in the right place. Listen to Rav Nachman. I'll read it. Read it with me. You see line number two? The lines are numbered. This is one of the miracles of computer age. You can number lines. It's absolutely marvelous. You see number two, line number two? Line number three? The Torah starts at line number four. Line number four, there's an aleph. You see it? You all have it? Listen. Hashem yitbarach machmat rachmanuto bara et haolam. There is a question that some people once asked. They turned out to be Kabbalists, but they didn't have to be. And that question was, why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu create the world? Because it seemed to us, or the people who asked the question, that if you go to do something, to make something, to get something, it's because you're missing it. And if you weren't missing it, you wouldn't go to do it. You wouldn't build it. You wouldn't make it. You wouldn't kind of pull it together. You wouldn't do any of those things. So if HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, what was HaKadosh Baruch Hu missing? What was it that he needed? What was it that had to be, that had to be done? Question. So the Arizal, remember the Arizal? The Arizal. Have you ever been to Tzvat? You've been to Tzvat. You know the Arizal, he's still there. Maybe buried, maybe hovering, I don't know. But the Arizal was in Tzvat. He came to Tzvat from Alexandria, and he came to Alexandria from Yerushalayim. So that's a pretty nice biographical kind of sketch. Yerushalayim, Alexandria, Tzvat. He was a student of Torah Shebinigle, the known and obvious Torah, and he was a student of the Torah Shebinistar, the hidden Torah. And when he came to Tzvat, he, had, he made a tremendous impression. He wasn't in Tzvat for very long. He died shortly after he came to Tzvat, and yet he managed somehow to impress the people so profoundly that he almost started a new religion, the Judaism of the Arizal, much of which has become incorporated into kind of normative halachic Judaism. So the Arizal had a, you know, kind of a, an impact that is hard to comprehend. But part of the reason that he was able to be successful was because he had very clever and talented students. One of those students was named Rav Chaim Vital. No, he was not named after the street in Yerushalayim. The street in Yerushalayim was named after him. Rav Chaim Vital wrote several large volumes. He wrote them, he compiled them, he prepared them, something like that, 
about the Torah, the teachings of the Arizal. So the teachings of the Arizal that we have are thanks to Rav Chaim Vital. Rav Chaim Vital, his teachings, his teachings were put together in a large book called Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim. It's a big book. The fir- and it's sort of questions and answers, that big book. And the first question in that big book called Eitz Chaim, which was written by or composed by Rav Chaim Vital, according to the teachings of the Arizal. The first question in the Eitz Chaim is, why did God create the world? Why? And the first answer to the first question was because, as Rav Nachman says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, after all, is merciful. Mercy is a quality that is associated with God. But if there's nothing, there's nothing to be merciful about. And you can't, you can't apply this midah, this feature of your personality to reality. You can't be merciful because there's no one to be merciful about. And so, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world. Now, I don't know if this analysis makes you happy or not, but it doesn't really matter. Rav Nachman thought that the Arizal was right. And that's what you have to know in order to understand this Sheur that we're involved with. Right? You have to know that. So Rav Nachman says, let's look again at the first line. Right? Aleph. Ki Hashem Yitbarach Machmat Rachmanuto. Rachmanuto. His mercy, meaning his midah, his quality called mercy. He is a merciful God. Bara et olam. God created the world. That's principle number one that Rav Nachman of Bratzlov uh, enunciates following the Arizal. That's important to know. Then he says, and if God had not created the world, how would he ever be merciful? How would he ever be? So there was something empty. There was something missing. God could not act out his mercy. And so, as a result, he had to create the world. And therefore, God created the entirety of creation. And then there, like a technical statement here, and somehow the creation came from, from the kind of essence of God and somehow took it down into the created, into the created world. All of this was done in order that God should be, a, should be able to be merciful. Now, you, you do remember, you do remember, 
that the Jews, after receiving the Torah, this is still last, last year's parashiot, right? In Parashav uh, Kitisa, there's a description of the Cheta Egel, the transgression of the golden calf, which took place right after they received the Torah. And it's hard to imagine that there could be any forgiveness for such a transgression. But in fact, in fact, God did forgive B'nai Yisrael. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Moshe Rabbeinu at that time, Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, Vechanun. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu was made aware of the fact that the primary way that God, that God relates to the world is through mercy. And so if you connect that to what the Arizal said, it may even be a little bit more understandable, comprehensible. Uh, uh, I like it, <laughs> but it's your choice. So then he goes on and says, At sof gashmi, so that this mercy kind was injected into the created world, which is gashmi, which is like made of real. It's a real world. It's not divine. Right? Now we're up to line six after the period. When God decided to create the world, so now, point number two. Point number one was God created the world because he was merciful and wanted to act out that mercy. And I told you that after the Chaita Egel, after the transgression of the Egel, God had this tremendous opportunity to be merciful beyond what anybody could imagine. Now he goes on to talk about something else, and he says, how did God create the world? He had a question, a, ge a question of geometry. Geometry? We've all learned geometry someplace along the way. Of course, geometry. He said, before the creation of the world, well, what was there? I bet this is not a question that I'm asking anybody in particular. But this is a question that the Kabbalists ask. Imagine what an imagination they had. How, how, how interesting it was that they were able to think about things that we're not so interested in thinking about. So they said, what was there in the universe before God created the world? So they said, before Einstein, you know Einstein said that the universe is like limited. There's like a, it's like we're in a bubble. So imagine that you're in a bubble. So the Kabbalist said, the Kabbalist said, well, God wanted to create the world. Well, what was in that world before God created the world? So they said, it was all God. Imagine the bubble, it's all God. So the Kabbalist asked, well, where exactly did God make the created world? I mean, there was no room, because every place was God. God filled every place. What do you think? 
Well, my understanding of ge geometry is that it's a good question. If something fills the space, it's very hard to put something else into the same space. So that the catalysts, led of course by the Arizo, the catalysts, used a concept that predated them, but which they found very, very useful. And that concept is the Hebrew word tzimtzum. Tzimtzum. What is tzimtzum? To kind of make something smaller or move something away. So they said, well, I guess that when God set out to create the world, when God set out to create the world, he had to make a little place for the world that he's going to create. Right here we have this bubble, and the bubble is full of God, right, Ein Sof, and God wants to create something in that bubble, so he's going to say, well, I'll, I'll just make room. I'll go, I'll move aside. I will say, how much room do we need to create the universe? Oh, okay, that much? So we'll give it that much, and we'll create the world in the place where God was at, had absented himself. Creates the place where God had absented himself, and that's called Tzimtzum. If you look at the, uh, uh, if you look at the, the I, mean, I don't want to explain all the words, but you look at line seven, you see, like the or represent light, uh, it's God. He like moved it aside. He moved some of the light a little bit here and a little bit there, and there was this empty space in the middle. That's great. Those of you who are Kabbalists or scholars of Kabbalism or students of Kabbalism, you all know that there's a halal hapanui. Halal is an empty space. Right? Halal. Even today we use that word. Right? Up there, there's a halal. Halal panui. There's an empty space. Why is there an empty space? Because God wanted to create the world. Why did God want to create the world? Because he wanted to show his mercifulness. Right? And therefore, there was created an empty space. Now, what does this have to do with Boel Paro? Good question. Thank you for asking. Has everything to do with Bo El Paro. Because another question, another question that the uh, Kabbalists had, another question that the Kabbalists had was a question that, you know, medievalists also thought about. You know, there are certain questions that people thought about once and they got so worn out thinking about them that we don't think about them anymore. We kind of inherited the worn out state of affairs. We don't think about it. So one of the questions that the Kabbalists thought about was, where, where, where do we get the wherewithal to do the wrong thing? Where, where, how, could we, how could we do Averot? How can we do things that are 
unacceptable. After all, God created us. So shouldn't we be like God? Shouldn't we be like God? And well, we're not. At least most people I've met in my lifetime are not exactly like God. Or not exactly like that idea that I have about God. So how do we get that? How do we get that? I mean, how did Adam Arishon, first man, Chava, his wife, how did they do it? I mean, they're walking around Gan Eden. They know that God is watching them. I wouldn't say it's exactly 1984, but it's, it's the way it is. I mean, the Garden of Eden. I mean, God was walking around in the Garden of Eden, Eden with Adam and with Eve. They were being watched. They had one mitzvah, one lonely mitzvah, and it was a negative, like a cinch. It's not like eating a matzah. I mean, you have to do something, or shaking a lulav. All you have to do is not eat that fruit. Now, most children don't eat every fruit that you offer them. Like children are discerning about fruits. And so could adults be. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, it was like, what I mean is, it was a negative commandment, but it was an easy one. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They ate. They ate. Where did they get the fortitude? Where did they get the strength to act in that way? This is the way the capitalists are thinking about it. So what kind of world are we living in? God created the world. We should be like God. We should be striving to be like God. We're children of God, children of parents. I mean, we look around, don't we see? We see uh, people who grew up. Right? We knew them as children. They grew up. We say, oh, you're just like your father. You're just like your mother. It's like a reasonable thing. How come Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, why couldn't they be like God? Why can't we be like God? It's like a problem that the Kabbalists, the Kabbalists had. So they answered that question. They answered that question by saying that there's a halal hapanui. Halal hapanui, an empty space. Empty of what? What is that empty space where God created the world? What is it empty of? Are you afraid to say it, right? But don't to be afraid, so I'll say it. It's empty of God. In other words, if God took himself out of that space in order to make room for the created world, then it must be, right? Ergo, eo ipso, or something like that. What are those Latin terms that are appropriate? It must be that God is not in the place where he created the world. Which then, you say, like that's really crazy. That's really crazy. It means we live in a world without God. It can't be. That can't be. The capitalists couldn't put up with that. And so they had to put God back into the world where God had taken himself out of the world. And so you ended up with a world 
that you could find God if you really looked very hard, but if you didn't look so hard, you could sort of imagine that God wasn't there. And that was the world that the Kabbalists understood. They understood that the world was a tough place to be. It was not obvious to the people who lived in the world that good is good and bad is bad. And good is the only choice that should be made. And bad should be avoided at all costs. And that's because we were created by God. But rather, it became a world. It became the way they saw it, the way they saw it. It was a world. It was a world where you could do good, yeah. You could find good. You could find the godliness in the world, but you had to look for it. You had to be willing to make that effort. Because if you didn't make that effort, if you were relaxed, if you thought everything was fine, if you lived in the Garden of Eden and you walked around and you plucked a fruit from here or, or ate a banana from there and it didn't cost you any effort and there was no investment at all, well, then you might just say, you know, let me eat that fruit that God told me not to eat. Because what difference does it make? What difference does it possibly make to God if I eat that fruit or I don't eat that fruit? And since I don't think it makes any difference to God, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You can't tell me. I must have misunderstood. I must have misheard. I must have misapprehended. It's not the way you thought it was. And so, the Kabbalists understood that we lived in a world which was a difficult world to navigate. It wasn't an easy place to be. It wasn't a place where the good is obvious. Each one of us knows. We know what the right thing to do is. We know each one of us. In a particular case, we know what the right thing to do. We don't do it. We say, but this is not exactly that case. I'm not exactly in that position. I'm not necessarily under that, the jurisdiction of that regulation. We have in Israel, Baruch Hashem, endless numbers of people who seem to be under scrutiny for things that they did that should not have done. Are they all bad people? I don't think so. They made up excuses for themselves. They just don't think that the regulation applies to them. Imagine that. Imagine that. The same thing is true about the mitzvot in the Torah. People say all the time, they say, I want to do the mitzvah. I would do the mitzvah. I should do the mitzvah. Uh, I can't do it today. I'm a little tired. Uh, my back hurts. My feet hurt. I'll do it tomorrow. Right, this is like we... It's all inside of us, inside of every one of us. Because we live in the world that was created in the Halal HaPanui. And living in the world that was created in the Halal HaPanui is difficult. Because we want to do the right thing, each of us. But we get confused easily about what the right thing is in a particular situation. So what Rav Nachman is telling us is that the way that the world was created, that the way that the world created is 
is special. It's different. It's difficult. It has all sorts of dangers. The Jews stood at Har Sinai. The Jews stood at Har Sinai and received the Torah. And immediately after that, in the Torah that they received, were the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments say, don't be idolatrous. It can't be much simpler than that. And in fact, the Ten Commandments say, do not even take God's name in vain. Like, you know, God is not so personable, not so intimate with us. You don't say, hey, like you say to a friend, you call him by, by a, a nickname that you used when you were kids. No, that's not how God is. God is special, different, one. And yet, the Jews had nothing to hold themselves back were unable to deal with this reality, and they created an idol. Now, whatever you think that idol was, whatever category in the halakha that idol comes under, it wasn't a good idea. So you see that even in the most dramatic moments, in the time when HaKadosh Baruch Hu sort of made himself available, to Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael was not able to deal with it. I mean, the metaphor has to do with light. Right? Light. And it's great, you know, light. You know about light? It lights things up. It makes it possible to see where you are. But if you have a lot of light, you find yourself covering your eyes. Right? We can't take it. The normal reaction to a lot of light is, I don't want any light. So this is, I it's a metaphor. It's like, you know, if I was a poet, I would make it into poetry. But what it means is, what it means is that, you know, something you see in the Torah, like too much, too close to God, it just doesn't work. It, 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 the people can't deal with it. The people who are standing there. And so later on in the Torah, you know, repeated in Tvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu said to B'nai Yisrael, you want to come? You want to be, stand with me before God and get the Torah? They said, no. They said, we, we, we can't take it. You go. You go, Moshe, you get the Torah. We'll stay here. We'll, uh, we'll talk small talk. We'll talk about, you know, what's doing. What's doing in the neighborhood, what's doing in shul, what's doing in politics. So you bring the Torah, and then we'll, we'll, we'll learn a little with you. But we can't, like, really do it. We can't do it. It's, it's, the light is it's murderous. It's terrible. It's terrible. So that's the world that we live in, according to Rav Nachman. Now, if you look at, at the next section, Vav, you see Vav, line 16. Line 16, so Rav Nachman now turns to our parasha with all this background stuff that we talked about. So Rav Nachman talks to our, uh, turns to the parasha, he says, and this is what the pasuk really means. And this, and this, what's this? 
right? You remember Tzimtzum, Chalalapanui. This is the Pasuk that we're talking about. How so? How so? Kipar O Lishon Bitul. This, uh, you, you remember, Hebrew, Hebrew is usually written unvocalized. When you look at it, Sefer Torah, the Sefer Torah doesn't have vocalization, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, there's a, a historical reason that vocalization was only invented hundreds of years after Matan Torah. But there's another reason, according to Chazal. Hebrew words are not limited to their proper pronunciation. The fact that you could pronounce Hebrew words in different ways, just give a word without vocalization. You might read it one way, you might read it another way. Which is why, now since the advent of computers, there's a lot more vocalization. Because when you, when you give a, a, a student a text to read that's unvocalized in Hebrew, even in Israeli, who's spoken and read Hebrew his entire life, he might have difficulty reading an unvocalized text because the words can be read in different ways. Now, Chazal thought that this was something significant, that the fact that you could read Hebrew words in different ways was something that you had to pay attention to. And this was carried down amongst the commentaries until, certainly until Rav Nachman of Braslav, but to our day, till today. So Rav Nachman says this. He says this. He, he says, uh, I'm sorry. Lo shem shavmakom le... No, I'm not. Vav. You see line 16? V'zeva yom ha-shevel mo-shevel paroke ha-nechmadati v'hu b'chinat chalala panui. So Rav Nachman says, you know what we're talking, God is talking about too, Moshe Rabbeinu. He's talking about the Chalala Panui. And we are, we all know what that is. We, here, sitting in this room, we all know about the Chalala Panui. Ki paro lishon bitu. Because the word paro, pei, resh, ayin, aleph. Anyway, paro. Paro has the root, pei, resh, ayin. Root, I mean, names don't really have roots, but we'll make believe. So the root, peresh ayin, also means to separate, to make, to make a division. Yes? Well, if you don't believe me, that's all right. But for the purpose of this shiur, you have to believe me. Paro means, it's another meaning of the root, peresh ayin, or those three letters together is to separate something. So how does how does Rav Nachman how does Rav Nachman say it? How does Rav Nachman say it? He says paro peresh ayin hey lishon bitu, like you you're getting rid of something, you're you're moving it away, which produces some something empty in the middle. Milishon, milishon. Lama tafriu et ha'am imasav. That's what Paro said. Moshe and Aaron came to Paro and they said, let's go out into the wilderness and sacrifice. And Paro said, Lama. Lama tafriu et ha'amimasa. What do you mean tafriu? So we usually de, de, uh, 
say that tafriu means why, why do you want to disturb them? Ha'am But Rav Nachman said, no, it could mean why do you want to separate them from what they are doing, from their job? You want to take them away from their job. Lava tafriu mi melachtam. Tafriu ta'am melachto. Vigam paro lishon hitgalut. And the word paro also, like the, the root of that word, also is hitgalut, to become aware of something. You become aware of this empty space that God created the world in. It is as it's an empty place in which there was a an awareness, a heightened awareness of all of creation. So, so we'll go back to the top of the page. Hashem El Moshe. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu. God says to Moshe Rabbeinu. Oh, I have to tell you something. This is the beginning of the parasha of Bo. In the parasha of Bo, there are three makot. Three makot of the ten. Three of ten. The first of the three is Arbe. The second is Choshech. And the third is Makat Bechorot. You don't remember from the Seder? Seder? No? I'll do it again. The first is Arbe. Arbe are locusts. Locusts. The second is Choshech. Choshech is darkness. And the third is Makat Becharot. Now, as I understand it, the first seven makot of a paro. The first seven makot, and I can't uh, to go into this now, but we did it when we talked about it last night. The first seven makot are makot for paro, in the hope that paro will understand, in the paro, hope that paro will come to the right conclusion in the hope that power will enable the Jewish people to leave. All of that, all of those things, all of those things are the seven makot. The eighth makah is, according to Rav Nachman of Bratzlav, directed really to Am Yisrael. To Am Yisrael. In what way? Vayomer Hashem El Paro. Bo El Paro. Vayomer Hashem. I'm sorry. Vayomer Hashem El Moshe. Bo El Paro. What does Bo El Paro mean? There's a world in which things are not always perfectly clear. It's not always perfectly. What's Paro? Paro is things open up, right? There's an opening. And there's an empty space. And the empty space, the empty space produces 
the need for tzimtzum. And the tzimtzum means that God is absent. And the result of that is the creation of the world. And therefore, the creation of the world is a difficult place because the world was created in a place where it's not always easy to access God. We stand, sometimes we daven, and we wonder what we're doing. We do mitzvot and we're not sure if we have it really in our minds or under control as it should be. And that was what Rav Nachman was sympathetic to. And Rav Nachman said, Rav Nachman said that the Jewish people have to be worthy of receiving the Torah. In order to be worthy of receiving the Torah, they had to get to the point where faith overwhelmed doubt. That was Rav Nachman's philosophy. For Rav Nachman, everything was faith. Everything was faith. And the difficulty that people have with faith, that was normal. That was as it should be. That was the way the world was created. There is no question for Rav Nachman that the world is a tricky place to be in. So the first seven makot were the makot for Paro. The last three makot were the makot Arbe, Choshech, Makat Becharot. Makat Becharot was the makot that got B'nai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. Choshech was the makot where a lot of bad Jews or Jews who were not able to be in this process died. And so Arbe was the Makkah that Moshe Rabbeinu was instructed by Paro, Bo El Paro, come into that empty space. Show the people that faith can overcome doubt. Because they were influenced by the Egyptian milieu in which they found themselves. They were looking around and they saw Paro strong and unwavering, unable to change anything in his original position. And so they wondered. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, why are we doing this? Why are we making doubt for our people? I had it under control. I came to them. I said, let's get out of here. If we would have gone, we would be wonderful. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to, Avram, to Moshe Rabbeinu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, the people who received the Torah have to be a people who understand that there's a difficulty involved, that things don't always look as perfect as they might, and things are not always as clear as they might be. And that means, that means that B'nai Yisrael are going to a world of the Halala Panui, of Tzimtzum, a world in which it's not always clear how to actually do what God wants them to do. And yet they have to be willing to go into that world and to accept the Torah in that world. So that this parasha, beginning with the words Bo El Paro, according to Rav Nachman of Bratzlaw, were addressed to B'nai Yisrael. To B'nai Yisrael who had a difficulty in understanding how it was that Paro was so steadfast, was so strong, was so unwavering in his opposition to letting the Jews leave. And so Rav Nachman was supposed to, according to Rav Nachman, Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to tell B'nai Yisrael, look, 
It's not a piece of cake. It's not a simple thing that we're going to become part of. But there'll always be questions, there'll always be lack of understanding, and there'll always be difficulties. And the only answer to those difficulties, according to Rav Nachman of Bratzlav, was faith. It wasn't logic, it wasn't science, it wasn't smartness, it wasn't any of those things. The only thing that could help the Jew get through the difficulties of his existence in Olamazeh, in this world, where there's always, it's hard to understand, how could God let this happen? How did that happen? And what does this mean? And what does that mean? It's something we carry around with us, like it or not, endless, unanswerable questions. And Rav Nachman said, that's the nature of the world in which we live. You may know, that Kola Olam Kulo is Gesher Tsar Ma'od. That's Rav Nachman. He said it. He didn't sing it, but he said it. And that was good enough at the time. Kola Olam Kulo Gesher Tsar Ma'od means, you know, like you look, you're on this, this bridge. At every place you look, it's dark. It's unclear. Like there's nothing there. And you know that you have to get to the other end of the bridge in order to find God? You know that. Vaikar lolefachet. Vaikar lolefachet. It's there. The other end of the bridge exists. There will be an answer. But right now, right now, Rav Nachman of Bratza said lolefachet. And this was the lesson that Bnei Yisrael had to learn before Yitziat Mitzrayim. Because when they went out of Mitzrayim, they had to be worthy. It's a tough word, worthy. Worthy of receiving the Torah. Worthy of receiving the Torah meant that there was a chance that they would hold on to it. That they would be able to keep it. They would be able to manage it. In spite of the fact that the world they live in was full of this kind of dissonance, cognitive dissonance about what God really wants. Have a good Shabbos.